Hey you, welcome to Evolve, a show to help you become a hero and solve the world's greatest challenges. I'm your host, Brandon Stover, founder of Plato University, and I interview social innovators, entrepreneurs, and thinkers about the global problems we face and the solutions they have created to solve them. Today's challenge, clean cooking and climate change. Our guest is Ben Jeffries, the CEO of ATEC International, which supports households across Asia and Africa to transition to modern decarbonized cooking through its patented Internet of Things stove products, delivering cost efficiency to households, data validated carbon credits to net zero partners, and addressing the 4 billion people who lack access to clean modern cooking. After moving his family to Cambodia in 2015 to commercialize ATEC's biodigester prototype, which was also the winning product of the Google Impact Challenge, he turned it into a social enterprise and has helped ATEC become a global leader in clean cooking with its two flagship on-grid and off-grid products, delivering data-driven, scalable impact not only for cooking, but data validation of carbon reduction as well. And today, Ben is going to share how ATEC is aiming to help 800 million households to offset more emissions than the global airline industry, while saving the lives of millions of women each year who traditionally cook with wood. So where I'd like to start is there's 4 billion people, which is half the global population, that has a lack of access to clean modern cooking services. Explain to us just how detrimental this problem is. Yeah, thanks, Brandon, and, and it's a pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting problem that I think a lot of people sort of in the in the developed world aren't aware of, that majority or majority of households in, in the developing world still cook with wood. And I mean, that's something they've done for a very, very long time. And we used to do in the, the developed world a couple hundred years ago as well. But it actually has some very severe health impacts, particularly on women who, who tend to bear the brunt of most of, of that cooking duty. And it's effectively the equivalent of smoking around a pack of cigarettes a day, cooking with wood. So you tend to see all kinds of issues around simple things, or not simple, but things like cataracts and the eyes, other sort of eye-related issues, smoke exposure, through to effectively lung cancer and other lung-related diseases as well. So yeah, it tends to have a very big cost, particularly on women. The World Bank estimates it's about $1.8 trillion per year in health costs. Yeah, and at the same time, cooking all that wood actually emits a lot of carbon emissions as well. So cooking with wood actually yeah, contributes more to climate change than the global airline industry, for example. So it's this huge environmental problem. Yeah, it seems like it's pulling on a lot of different strings, both you know healthcare from the climate perspective and the economic perspective, a large problem to be solved. When you and your team were approaching this problem, you could choose from a number of different problems that you know you could have tried to address agriculture sustainable farming a whole bunch of different things walk us through your decision process for choosing a high impact problem that you could actually have a significant role in solving yeah that's a very accurate question to exactly the process we went through we literally sat back and, and part of that was was me as well of going okay well where could we have the greatest possible impact in the world, basically. And for us, interestingly, in the early days, the, the first product we started with, which is a, a biogas product that converts animal waste to like manure into gas and fertilizer for, for the households, that you could say that's an agricultural thing. You could say it's a cooking thing, et cetera. And, and we went through this process and it was interesting. So at, at that time, I, I was kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we do this as a team and, and to come to the right decision? And it was at that time, I can't remember 
who who uh, recommended, I think it was Beck in our team, she was like, I have a read of these couple of books, one of them being Jim Collins' Good to Great, which mm. I don't know if, if you've come across that, but a fantastic seminal business strategy book. And uh, one of the things he talks in there is the hedgehog concept, which is pretty much the question you said, you said is like, what, what can you be good at? What has the creates the most value and then what drives what he calls your economic engine, as in can you actually do it in a way that uh, generates revenue and, and therefore scale? And then your hedgehog as such, the thing you focus on is that one in the middle. So we went through this process. It was about a year long of strategic discussions with the team of, okay, well, where exactly do we want to focus? And where can we add that value? And it kind of came down to two things, one thing with two different views. One is that this cooking problem is the biggest problem we can see that is technically solvable. It's mm-hmm. literally if you get this bit of hardware into the household, you can that, that effectively solves the issue of people that are using it. So it's a there's many big problems out there, but this was a very technically solvable problem with the with the with the right bit of hardware. And then the second thing we saw as well is our role in that is, yes, it's to get that hardware piece in there, but we can do a lot of work on the the software, the data back end to then do that in the best way possible by making this device not just a standalone stove, but then connect it in with things like carbon credits, which I can explain a bit later, and other international capital that basically makes makes these more affordable, easier to access, and more attractive for people to, to make that switch from cooking. When you guys were doing this year-long process, was there any specific ways you were like researching each of the problems to come to the conclusion like this one actually is solvable and we should focus on this one besides, you know, a different one? We had a bit of a different experience because we we already understood several of those problems, particularly because we kind of wanted to look at sort of households and how can we impact the people on the ground living in these areas. Yeah. And we we almost had a bit of the opposite of we knew multiple problems really, really well. So we already had a pretty good grasp, but it was really a question of focus from there. So and that was kind of the problem we were having is we was there was lots of things that we could pursue and we were kind of getting a diffusion of effort. So it was actually figuring out what not to do was mm. the sort of more important step at that stage. Was there any major like macro trends going on as well that were kind of pointing you to this is the correct time to implement this solution? One of the biggest trends as such was if you look at countries like Cambodia and Bangladesh, over the last 10 years, they've gone from like, you know, half, half the country's population having electricity it's now up to almost 100% of households having mm. access to electricity, which is a huge developmental milestone. And so that was a real driver for us of going, okay, well, with this, basically this ability to get electrons into the household in a very, very cheap and effective way, we could actually utilise that sort of energy supply to then bring that into cooking. So we have this electric, this high-efficiency electric cook stove option. That, that was probably one of the biggest ones we saw was these households were fundamentally changing and yeah, how, can we, how can we jump on the back of that? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the two products that you have. First, you have the biodigester and then the second mm-hmm. one's the electromagnetic induction stove. Yeah. Can you explain each of these products and kind of how they work and why they're a better alternative to the cooking methods with wood? Yeah, so the first one, the biogas product, which is the one we originally started with in Cambodia, is is just a, a brilliant product for the right household. So basically, it's it's like uh, if you think of one of our rainwater tanks we have, say, in America or, 
or Australia, and one of those modern ones. They're made out of a material called LLDPE, quite a robust material. And with those, basically, rather than putting water in, you take your your animal and household waste. So it can be, the, say, typically it's the cow manure is the most common one, but then you can throw in your kitchen waste, agricultural, mm. green waste, etc. So you put it into the system and then it's basically like a giant cow's stomach. So it's got the same bacteria in there that's inside a cow's stomach. Okay. They basically break it down into an organic fertilizer. So you get about 20 tons of organic fertilizer per year at the system. And then at the same time, you get about it's about 1,300 1, to 1,800 litres of, of biogas per day, which is equivalent to sort of two to four hours of cooking time per day at the system. So now our system's quite sort of unique in the way that it works, that basically as, as the waste is put in, it creates pressure, which means then you can just switch on your gas like this and you, you get gas just like you would for an LDG cook stove. Hmm. And so so we sell it with a, a double stove. We actually also have had a rice cooker in the past as well, which is a pretty important thing in the in the markets where we work as well. So, yeah, so that, that basically just means they have free renewable gas uh, for cooking. It also reduces carbon emissions as well. And then you get this fertiliser as well, which can increase your crop yield from anywhere from up to 30% basically okay. uh, as well. So it's a great product for the right type of household, which is a small-scale farming household, which is maybe sort of 5 to 10% of households. Then the rest of the households, that then led us to the question, which goes back to what you were saying before about this, this strategic decision point, was, okay, well, that's great, but what about that other 90%? What is the next best solution right. for them if they don't have the livestock or the farming set up, et cetera? And that's when we looked at everything from LPG to ethanol stoves, et cetera, and we decided that, well, with this incoming grid, this high-efficiency induction cook stove, which is the one that needs, like, special pods. I don't know if you've ever used it in, in America, but it's it's a, it's a great technology to use. I have a Bosch system in my house, and we run it off our solar. It's fantastic. And so we created a, a version of that that's like a, a tabletop version of all four of these countries. And so, yeah, and that's about, compared to, say, if you're going to use gas in these countries, it's about 50% of the running cost, safer, it's cheaper. And then we have this carbon credit component for, for both products after that as well. And because most of these households are now on the electrical grid, it's not pulling too much from that portion? Yeah, it's, it's actually a really interesting question. And this is one of the challenges. And I think we're seeing, I was having a, a chat with someone the other day in California, and she was saying like they've had issues more due to bushfires and stuff, but with brownouts and, and stuff like that. This right. is a, a concern in some of these markets is, they're investing billions of dollars in this grid electrification. So part of that is increasing power generation capacity in countries where we work. That's, that can be a combination of things. Hydroelectricity is really common in, in Asia, which mm. is, is really good from a renewable energy perspective. But at the same time, they need to be investing in the the quality of, of basically all the wiring for the grid. So, And that tends to be the part that's a, a little bit of a it's, – it's not where it should be quite often the time. It's usually you don't have enough – it's not that you don't have enough – electricity it's that your infrastructure to get that electricity to the household there'll be somewhere along there that's basically not performing as well as possible so yeah so so that tends to be the main challenge right now i mean they're, they're investing the government's billions of dollars in solving this this stage but yeah it's it's something also our stove has the ability you can remotely monitor the electricity usage so we're going to start working with grid providers to help them understand okay who's cooking when and can we do off-peak discounts on, on cooking, et cetera, to shift some of that load around as well. Amazing. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit about the sensors mm -hmm. and what you guys are doing with the data later mm -hmm. on. But could you explain to our listeners, 
your guys's impact flywheel and how it works and why you believe it's the key to solving clean cooking we published a, a bit of a thought leadership article on this last year and it's on the, the website next billion which does like sort of news in the, the development sector we were trying to think through okay well what's our role to play in solving this problem and then how can we develop it in a way that as we grow we actually what you call like compounds our ability to solve this problem even better so the flywheel concept again it goes back to something that sort of jim collins kind of worked on originally with amazon of all people so that if you, for example if you google amazon flywheel that's probably one of the most famous flywheels going around and then in their perspective they talk about okay well if we get more sellers onto the site selling products that's going to bring more traffic and the more traffic we bring then the more sellers want to be on the site. So basically this is our compounding effect to go through that. Sure. So so what, what we saw with us was, okay, well, if we can, we saw that these households have this problem, we need to solve it. We can obviously just directly sell them a product in a traditional business, but is that really a strong value add for us as a sort of international social enterprise? And what we saw that was that, okay, well, what we can probably bring more to the table is rather than just sort of selling a stove as such, which is not, it's a good thing, but we have this ability to develop basically technology. Uh, or if I go the other end, we have the ability to get these international sort of capital opportunities, so carbon credits, investment and debt, et cetera, and be able to bring that money together and then actually channel that through to solving this problem in the household using technology. So the, the best example of this is, okay, instead of just having a standalone stove, if we can make this a stove that can also directly generate carbon credits off the stove usage, we can then channel that through the data connectivity back into international markets who are looking to companies, be they airlines, energy companies, households, et cetera, who want to offset their greenhouse gas emissions. So they can buy these very high impact carbon credits directly off the stove and we can pass that value back through uh, to the households as well. So if we can do it in that way, basically, as we're solving this individual problem at the household level, we're, we're generating revenue over multiple years and then that revenue is able to use to help us continue and expand and, and solve this problem, bring the costs down uh, to these households significantly to, to switch that use across from, from wood to, to modern cooking. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you guys going to pass on some of the revenue and in investing that's made from the carbon credits to the users of these uh, induction stoves? Yeah, that, that's a really good question and something we're, we're super, super keen to do. So we're we're at this stage, we're kind of call, calling like end of phase one now, which is we've got the technology now where we can set it all up, where basically we can utilize that carbon credit revenue to basically reduce the, the cost of the stove to the household. But then the next stage that we're now starting to go through and develop is to go, okay, rather than just reducing the cost, how can we actually share this as a revenue stream mm -hmm. into these households moving forward? So we're, we're then becoming more like a service provider that, hey, if you use this stove, it's going to be great for you. Plus then you're going to have this ability to track your carbon or, or carbon credits that you generate off your behavior change. And then you can basically cash them in as you're going through and generating them once a month, once a year, whatever, whatever you want to go to from there. And for us, if we can get to that next phase, then it's basically like it's going to rapidly accelerate people transitioning across. Yeah, I think that would rapidly increase like adoption. I can think of, mm -hmm. you know, not only there, but 
if we could do the same thing in other areas of the world and other countries, mm. uh, getting people to adopt, you know, better habits around the energy that they're using, if you can incentivize them by, okay, if you're reducing the amount of energy you're using, you're actually going to get some payment from these carbon credits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, like a good example, I was talking to someone the other day was like, okay, let's say you're buying, you're looking to buy an electric vehicle. And someone came along and said, hey, if you buy this, and then you actually at the same time, if you use it a certain amount, then effectively, the the electric vehicle will, will be able to pay for it through the carbon offsets that you're generating. You'd be like, this is brilliant. Of course, I'll do it. Sign me up today. And yeah, not only will I want to want to get that technology, I want to use it up to that level to make sure that I'm maximizing my benefit. And that's us in like the developed world, you know, like uh, our disposable income is quite high. Yeah. While these households, like any small amount of sort of income has a huge amount of impact in their lives. Let's go ahead and shift to some of your story. It's starting in your career of business development and retail sales executive. But then at some point you decided to pick up your family, including your two daughters and move from Australia to Cambodia. So what drew you to moving to Cambodia? It was an interesting sort of sliding doors moment for, for me and, and my wife and well, the, kid, the kids were quite young, so they didn't have too much of a say, but we, we were very much considering them as well. Was we, we had a great life in Australia, but both me and my wife for, for many years have very much had a travel bug. Going back about 15 years ago, we, we took a year sabbatical to, to travel. We tried to attempt to travel from Europe back to Australia overland without taking a flight. Uh, unfortunately, mm. we didn't quite get there. There was a couple of points where we had to take a flight but we got pretty close but yeah we, we've always really had this this sort of motivation experience that if we have that opportunity once we have kids to get them to go and get exposure at a young age to different cultures different ways of doing things be really beneficial for them in the long term so yeah so we were we, we were doing pretty well happy in australia i was doing some good for purpose work here in australia actually working at a, a social enterprise incubator I was really enjoying that but yeah i very much wanted to get my hands onto a real problem and then look mm -hmm. at this opportunity overseas as well so yeah so at that stage there was lizzie who, who was a friend of mine she she was the ceo of an organization called engineers without borders and they were like, hey, we've kind of done this very early stage prototype around this biogas system. We've just kind of pitched it to Google for this Google Impact Challenge. And they're like, hey, this is cool. Why don't we give you some, some seed capital to basically commercialize that into a social enterprise? And she was like, hey, we're looking for someone with a bit of combination of business background and someone who's worked more on the impact side as well. And we started talking about it. And, and I was heading home and going to my wife, hey, how about we move to Cambodia if, if I can put in a I'll put myself forward for this and we move to Cambodia she's like oh, okay it's actually one of the few countries we've actually never been to so all right let's let's consider it and see how we go and we had a bit of a negotiation around uh, I won't get into the details but okay well if we do this then there's also this this other thing that I'm keen on as well We're like all right cool it sounds good so yeah I was lucky enough to go through that process and then yeah move to Cambodia which is those first few years were, were pretty crazy but it was a lot of fun and yeah we, we look back at it fondly and ended up having our third daughter over in Cambodia as well amazing yeah how was life different living in Cambodia than Australia yeah it's a really interesting very very interesting place you've got a country that I don't know have you ever been to Cambodia I have not no no. Okay. Yeah. So it's, 
it's one of the friendliest places you can go to. And this is a comment for anyone who goes and visits Cambodia. They're like, wow, the Cambodian people are just the friendliest people in the world, and which is very, very true. I'm wonderful people. But they're also a country with a very recent, huge sort of scar on, on, on their society, which is the Khmer Rouge period. So basically the entire people and generation now are all still living with that legacy of what happened with the Khmer Rouge and the, mm. and the mass genocide there as well. So one thing you find living in Cambodia was exceptionally lovely, friendly people, but then that ability to then actually really develop deeper relationships with local Cambodian people was, was really, really challenging. And originally we thought, oh, okay, maybe that's just because we're not Cambodian and, you know, maybe they really just like hanging out with the other Cambodians. But through work, I was able to really kind of get a bit closer with, with Cambodians and I was like, oh, no, it's just actually Cambodians very much stick to themselves. Like mm. you, you, your friends are your family basically. And so there's not a lot of socialising that occurs outside of your family. And that very much goes back to this Khmer Rouge period where, Basically, you could just trust no one. Like if you said the wrong thing to the wrong person, et cetera, you could basically just disappear. So it tends to be, it's a lovely, lovely place. Interesting. There's these interesting quirks in society that they're still living with this legacy from 40 years ago uh, around the Khmer Rouge as well. I'm curious about when you guys were first getting these products in the hands of these people. And you're mentioning, you know, a little bit about their culture of how they keep them themselves more insider based how did you get people to trust and adopt the product as you coming out from outsiders saying you know this is something that we think will help you that's a, a really good question we did it basically bringing a bit of the thinking the sort of like a bit of that silicon valley style strategic thinking of going okay well how do we remove the friction points in the in the process of people trying new technologies so for us the big one was rather than people buying the asset outright upfront how can we actually break it down into really small payments where the risk of trying something new is then very very low for people and that was really kind of the main main turning point for us was to be able to do this what's called pay-as-you-go structure which we have a company in australia that's doing something similar a software level called afterpay i think there's options in, in the us as well but yeah basically going okay well rather than buying this asset outright if you're, you're only spending a few dollars a month then the risk of you trying this and it not working out is then very, very low. But then we just sort of rely on the, the value of our product to see us through and customer service to see us through from there. So that was kind of the main point we found that really sort of helped to overcome some of those initial trust concerns. But yeah, it's been interesting as well in like, like typically if people love a product, you know, they'll talk about it with their family and friends and you'll get lots of referrals, etc. That doesn't really happen in Cambodia because again, people are, are quite quite risk averse in, in going out and, and sort of talking about things with people, which is very different. The other country operated with in with is Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is very different. People are just like referring us left, right and centre, going, hey, no, okay, call them, blah, 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 like super social, super outgoing culturally of, of going out there. So it's quite interesting seeing those differences. Well, you also mentioned being called in with this team of engineers who were already working on a product when you were brought on board. I'm curious what the iteration process for the prototypes were and kind of, you know, how you funded those first prototypes and got them going out to people. So when I came on board, the engineers who had previously done work on it were actually volunteers. So typically how engineers without borders work, it's a bit like other without borders organizations is they'll take a bit of a career break for a year, 
go over and, and do this project overseas and, and try and develop something up from an engineering perspective. So when, when I came on, it was kind of, here's this kind of prototype here. There's this guy, give him a call. He's a local Cambodian guy that did some work on it with us. And there was this guy. And I was like, okay, cool. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get going. It was, it, was, it was pretty sort of basic at that starting point. And then we, we, I got into country. I went and saw a few of those prototypes at the agricultural university we've done. I was like, okay, cool. We can see this. Let's, uh, let's see if we can replicate it from a commercial perspective. So we tried building one. So I got called these guys up who had previously kind of worked on these projects, but had then moved on to other things and said, oh, hey, can, can I get you to come and build these with me? Happy to pay you, et cetera. And they're like, oh, yeah, no worries. We're just happy to do it. Um, <clears throat> and so we built, built another one. And as soon as we built it, I was like, oh, man, this is, there is no way we can do this at a commercial level. Like this is just pure like engineering kind of just slapping it together and then doesn't work, not work. Okay, well, let's put some more glue here and stuff. <laughs> like that. This is just not going to work. So, yeah, so then we had a, a, luckily got two people on board. One was a young engineer called Lakshmi. She just, she was doing actually like an internship or looking for an internship out of university. Somehow I managed to get in contact with her and say, hey, do you just want to come do an internship with me? Because uh, I need someone to sort of help design, et cetera, and help connect with local people. And then went back to engineers with that board and said, hey, I really need an engineer. Can we get another volunteer in? So you've got a great guy called Lockie Harris who came over as well. And it was basically the three of us in those early days really starting to kick things off. And then we we went from that first prototype to then going, okay, well, we need to do like a production mold for this. And we were working with this local company that was was actually run by a Singaporean, managed by an Australian local staff. And we're like, oh, that's a good thing. They turned out to be just absolutely crazy. So we, we had this weird experience to the point where we were, at the end, we had to exit that relationship and we had to wait outside their factory with the gates locked for eight hours for someone to turn up so that we could actually get access to our mould and had to basically, yeah, it was, it was just crazy at that time but we managed to get the mold out and so yeah we had these in those first few years i think we went through four products sort of designs or phases before we finally got to something that was commercially viable from there and from there you were able to find some manufacturers to actually start making the product yeah, so we, we'd had a, that, that manufacturer had actually been doing it. And so we'd already been manufacturing at that stage. But yeah, we were kind of like, because I, I knew nothing about what's called rotor mold manufacturing, neither did, neither, neither did Lockie. So we're like, oh, these guys, they're, they're experts in this area. They'll know how to do it. And yeah, it just turned out that they were completely not. I had no, no idea. But we, we at least managed to get some out the door and, and start it up. And some of them didn't work, but we kind of just went, well, well, we'll get a few out. We'll just look after the people super well. So if there's any issues, we fixed it or replaced the system, et cetera, just to do those first few tests from there. And then, yeah, as it, as it then went from there, then we were able to figure out, okay, well, what do we need to do properly moving forward? And then we spoke to another manufacturer. We were able to get the moulds in over there and, and then off, off we went from there. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'd like to turn back to the pay-as-you-go model that you had mentioned mm. and making it more affordable for people to get the product in their home, start using it and paying afterwards. What I had seen in the research doing this is that sometimes I can actually help them to make an income from like the fertilizer that they're making, producing more mm. yield and things like that to help, you know, start paying for this product, which I thought was great. Are there any other ways that this starts to help produce more income for them to kind of fuel that 
pay-as-you-go model? Mm. Yeah, interestingly, one of the biggest ones, which is that we see with households, is if you take a cookie with wood, once you add up collecting it, preparing it, cooking, etc., it takes about 20 hours per week, predominantly of women's time, to cook in, in that way compared to a modern cooking setup. So you're talking that just cooking with wood, particularly and a lot of these households you're cooking two to three times a day, you're basically spending half a working week just in cooking compared to if you didn't, if you had a more modern setup. So the biggest impact we often see is the fact that you put in this technology, be it the biogas system or the electric cook stove system, and all of a sudden women have, have all this time freed up. And it's pretty rare for women to, I mean, we have no say, obviously, in what they then do with their time. Uh, we, our job is to give them that agency to have that option on from there but rarely do we come across a household that hasn't then gone and done something really productive for that time so we've seen women starting second businesses or like home businesses it could be like clothing or or they're growing additional vegetables they're selling these cash crops to the market they're doing all kinds of things we've had women who have started up businesses like cooking food as like a local restaurant uh, and stuff like that so that that to me is the most rewarding part of this whole thing is giving that agency to to women in these households to go okay well you've got the time now and you've got the ability you're not sort of you know having emphysema issues or we have one woman who used to spend like 20 30 dollars a month on medicine for mm. smoke related headaches and other things as well so you go out there and do do whatever you think is best for you and your family and that's that's probably the most rewarding part of this this whole work is seeing seeing what then comes out of that yeah, I think that's a hallmark of a good solution is, you know, we talked about the problems earlier of it helping to solve, you know, medical issues, helping to solve climate change issues. But mm. now we're t- talking about the economics of the place, maybe even freeing up time for education. Like we start to touch on these other systems that, you know, help kind of bring everything up together. And I've had this conversation with a, a few people and some sometimes people put forward that question of when I talk about that, they're like, well, how do you know that they they're going to use that time productively. And I'm like, well, we don't. I mean, it, it's not our job. I mean, we're, we're, we're not overlords of these people. Our job is to put in a bit, bit of technology that gives them the choice. And what they choose to do with that extra time is up from there. If they choose to, you know, cruise on Facebook for an extra couple of hours a day, hey, good luck to them. That's what that's what the, the, they can choose to do. It's, it's, it's up to them from that point on. Well, going along the the process, so you guys engineered a few prototypes, you get it to scale, you started production, getting it out to different people. When did you start to identify starting to provide induction stoves moving beyond the biofuel one? So it came after that strategic stage that we talked about before, which was, that was in, I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019. Once we kind of figured out, okay, well, if our role is, is to connect these emerging market households with international capital and figure out how to do that in a really effective, seamless way. We kind of come to that realisation and then at the same time came to the realisation with, with the biogas stoves uh, or, or setups that it was only ever going to be that sort of 5 to 10% of the market, which was actually a difficult decision or point to come to because if you look at the number of households with livestock, it's around 40 to 50% of households in a, in a rural area in Cambodia or Bangladesh. So we're like, okay, well, the the market in our original thing, it was like 40, 50% of households. And then we just weren't seeing that happen. And then we realized actually uh, it's because a lot of those, that sort of that that gap of households as such, 
were, yes, they had livestock, but they were probably looking at selling that livestock or selling the, the farming land as, as the country was progressing economically and shifting away from small-scale agriculture. So for them to buy this biogas system, which is a fantastic system, but it's a, it's a system for the long term. And so it, it just it wasn't going to sort of happen for those people because it just didn't make sense in their head. So that was the point that we went, ah, okay, so it's a great product for the right household who are committed to small-scale farming long-term, but that was only 5%, 10% of the, the households in the area. And then the, at that stage, we we're already doing pay-as-you-go, as you mentioned, for the biogas solutions. So our, our thought was like, oh, okay, well, we're, we're actually pretty good rather than just think of ourselves as biogas at this pay-as-you-go cooking. So, okay, well, then what's that next product that we think will be the, the next best solution for that other 90% of households that we could bring that pay-go technology into? And yeah, that's, that's- you guys were already in the process of, you know, producing this other product. Was it hard to transition to doing the induction stoves now or was mm-hmm. manufacturing and everything easy to get in place for that? If you look at our sales now, so the 80, 90% of sales are those electric cook stoves. And it's almost like all the hard yards we went through in trying to develop out the biogas product really helped us to come and make the right decisions around what product next. So, for example, with these electric cook stoves, we manufacture them at quite a large scale out of with our manufacturing partner in China and then ship them in directly into Cambodia and Bangladesh. Mm. Potentially, we want to look at production in those countries in the future as well. But that's what works with us for the best. But the ability to manufacture these at a large scale with high levels of quality control was something that we learned out of doing the biogas systems, which are a bit more manual. They're still commercially manufactured, but a, a bit more involved and a bit more manual. So it was those kinds of learnings that we were able to take from that first product to apply for the second one to go, mm. okay, well, we know we know what the constraints are going to be in getting this product to market. So that really helped us sort of choose the right solution uh, that we could see moving well, talk a little bit about some of the things that you're doing with this induction stuff, the way it's created so that you guys can collect data with it. And how are you guys are using that data to empower the customers? So if you think of that stove, it's like a, a standard modern electric cook stove. Like I mentioned, if you've seen like those induction stoves, houses in, in America, for example. So it works just like that. It sits on the tabletop. But then under under the hood, basically, is where that sort of sort of unique technology of ours is, is that, that, that motherboard or PCBA, as you call it, is then you have a SIM card connected into that. And so mm. what that SIM card does is... Basically, we can ship that anywhere in the world. We've sent it into Africa, other parts of Asia, et cetera. That SIM card is a global SIM that basically has a direct data connection back to ATEC. So what that does is that tells us like simple information like the GPS location of the stove, but then it also gives us access to be both send and receive data between us and the stove as well. So what that brings for us is three main use cases at this stage. One is that pay-as-you-go technology. What that means is people can use mobile money on their mobile money app or go to their local mobile money shop, uh, which is their banking equivalent in these countries, and you need to make a monthly payment. You do that. It then automatically syncs through our mobile money provider back to ATEC and then back onto the stove. Uh, say that, yes, you've made the payment, and then you keep using the stove from there. Hmm. So they're paying it off on an instalment plan uh, is basically how it works over a one to two year period. But then if they don't pay, then the stove switches off until that payment is received. So that's one of the ways that we can sort of really do this at a much larger scale is because we don't have to go around chasing people for money like you normally would in this situation. You can right. just go, okay, well, here's the stove. If it doesn't work, it switches off. And this has been a hugely successful business model in the solar sector over in Africa. So we kind of 
looked at that and went, hey, we can bring this into the cooking sector, this sort of pay-to-go approach. Okay. So that's kind of use case number one. Use case number two is when it comes to people using their stove, their, their ability to monitor their electricity usage is really, really important because there's kind of this assumption that it's quite expensive to, to use cooking, but it's actually really, really cheap. Hmm. So we'll be launching later this, later this year an app interface where customers can then actually track their electricity usage, much like, say, we would with some grid providers do this in our countries as well. So they can really easily see that. They'll be able to make mobile money payments, and then hopefully at some time in the future be able to track their their carbon credits through that app as well. So that's remit use case number two. And then that use case number three is... As people are using the stove, they're generating this usage data. We can then sort of bring that that usage data back to our servers and then convert that into carbon credits from there and then sell that to yeah, whoever whoever we're working with, be that energy companies, airlines, other people are looking to or companies to, off, to offset their emissions. And then that becomes that revenue source that we can use to to bring down the costs at this stage of, of the stove to the customers. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit of the economics behind carbon credits and you know why they're so attractive for the companies? To give you a, a, a very top level idea, the the market for the for solving this clean cooking problem globally is about a forty billion dollar market altogether. The market for solving or the carbon credits related to solving the clean cooking problem is around $240 billion. So it's about five times larger, the market opportunity around the carbon credits than it is around actually just the stoves. So for us, that's kind of a real driver of, okay, well, if we can tap into that money over there and bring that into solving this problem, Phase one, as I mentioned, is like that reduces cost significantly. And then phase two, actually, these people are actually the ones actually doing the hard work of reducing carbon emissions and they deserve to be paid for that solution. So that's ultimately where we want to want to get it to then is, is to make them part of, of solving this global problem and, and incentivizing them to do it. And I know there's been quite a few companies now like getting more into these carbon credits. What have you seen so far as like the trend with carbon credits and how many companies are moving towards that? It's been a really, really positive sign over the last couple of years, particularly in the since COP26 that was in Glasgow last year. I can't remember mm-hmm. when. A lot of companies have gone from talking about achieving their net zero goals to actually saying, yes, we're going to we're formally committing to it, which is really good, and governments too. So what that has meant is there's obviously the the end game solution we're we're all after is that zero emissions in in total, but that is going to take 10, 20, 30, 30 years to get to that point. So the next best solution is, okay, well, if you can't achieve that for all your emissions, like if your net zero is, let's say, 2040 when you're actually... 100% 100% zero emissions. Let's say the airline industry, yeah, to get everyone off aviation fuel is going to take time. So, so what we what the next best thing we can do is to go, okay, well, if you can't reduce it here, we can reduce it over there, and then you need to pay for it until that point. But at least we can use the money that from your emissions, which is effectively what this carbon credit is to do, to, to put it here. So one way I talk about it, because some people quite often talk about it and say, well, is carbon credits greenwashing? Like, you know, oh, yeah, we're offsetting our emissions, but then they're just emitting anyway. And it's like, right. no, it's a, it's a mar- market-based mechanism. And so people are actually having to pay for every single 
amount that they emit rather than just tokenistically buying something and saying, hey, we're great. It's like, no, you need to actually get from here down to zero. So so it's, it's fundamentally changed the markets over the last few years. We've gone from, I mean, we've been doing carbon credits since 2018, but all of a sudden now we've got companies approaching us, you know, with $10 million deals, $20 million deals, mm. saying, hey, we need to lock up our as many carbon credits as you can produce over the next 10 to 15 years because there's just this huge demand for this moving forward. So it's a pretty exciting time. It's gone from a potential, a high potential market, but smaller transactions to just a lot of, of opportunity flooding in right now, which is, is really good to see. It's good for us and, and for the planet. Yeah. And because it's based on market dynamics, like them prepaying would be them avoiding like the much larger cost of, you know, five, 10 years down the road when they're still producing emissions and need to pay for that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I look at the the prices we were doing back in 2018. I was like, man, like they got a good deal back then because yeah. effectively what they're doing is they're going, okay, well, we'll buy the credits and, and we'll incentivize it, but we'll lock it in over over this time period. So it's, it's a long-term deal. So for us, that that's very much their incentive is, is the quicker they can get in, then the better it is uh, for them from a price perspective. And it works on our side too, because at the the end of the day, the greater that investment we can get earlier, then the easier it makes to roll this technology out and accelerate yeah. through these phases that I'm, I'm talking about as well. So it, it is a win-win in that way. You just got to find that happy balance of, of sort of price versus risk. Well, we're talking about so trying to scale this to tons of people across the world to get mm. clean cooking. 800 million households transition to clean mm. cooking. Is this goal ever overwhelming for you it sounds like you have a pretty good model to like speed up this flywheel but i think anytime Mm -hmm. we try and tackle uh, a problem that's this ambitious or this large it can feel a bit overwhelming yeah maybe i don't know maybe i'm a little bit crazy on this point kind of the other way around i'm Mm -hmm. i'm i'm very impatient about this problem personally i'm like it kind of frustrates me that it's still there when i think we could actually solve this problem the others in my team get a little bit annoyed with me because i'm like we should be able to solve by the end of this decade like <laughs> seriously like there's no reason why it's just a, it's i forgot who was talking about so someone summed it up really well i think it was a, a way of thinking i think it was a guy from you're in uh, you're in austin is that where you are Brent? yes austin texas yeah 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 so one of my favorite podcast guys I listen to is Lex Friedman, who I think is in Austin as well. Yeah. And he, he was talking about something and he's gone, oh, okay. It's moved from a conceptual problem into an engineering problem. So mm-hmm. what he was saying is the technology is there. We just need to work out how to do it at X dollars for at X scale, etc. This cooking problem is, is an engineering problem now. It is no longer like, can we do it? It's like, oh no, if we can do X, Y, Z, it's, it's literally done. So, so that's where it's at. So to me, I'm quite impatient around this because I'm like, well, the, the solution is there. It's not like we need some amazing new technology or whatever. It's just, it comes down to scale and unit economics, basically. And, and off we go from there. So, yeah, so I, I don't see it as an overwhelming problem. I'm mm. kind of a little bit on the, on the opposite end of that. Yeah, tons of drive to get it solved, especially with that mm. perspective. Going from this transition of like working in the corporate world and moving to, you know, the social impact world and being a CEO of this company, and you just mentioned how much drive you have to solve this problem. How has this transition been for you personally? Like how have your views of work and life changed because of it? 
I think for me personally, I had a, I started off my career in, in the corporate sector and it was worked with some wonderful people and really enjoyed that. That was kind of like, you know, the, the training ground that helped me to be able to do what I'm, I'm doing today. But going to work was a chore. Uh, so the company I was working for at the time, a very successful global company, and the owner was one of the richest people in Australia, and he had this mega yacht kind of thing on, on in Sydney Harbour. And someone mentioned to me one day that how much it cost to fill up that mega with petrol, and it was the same as my annual salary. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, okay, so so I'm working for a guy, my annual salary, which is equivalent for filling up his yacht for a joyride, and I was like, yeah, this is. This is not why I get out of bed in the morning. So this is, yeah, that, that was kind of one of, there, were, there was multiple points, but that was the big realisation for me. So at that stage, then I was like, okay, well, I'd always wanted to work in more impactful areas. I originally, when I graduated university, I was like, okay, corporate social responsibility, how can I get into that area? I couldn't figure it out. So I went, well, let's just get into sort of the corporate world and, and then work it out from there. But after that, I was like pretty dedicated to making that transition. So at mm -hmm. that stage, I was, there's a, I don't know if it's well known in the US, but there's an international charity called Oxfam. And they actually were one of my clients at that stage when I was working in the corporate sector, they would do some advertising and stuff. And so I knew a few people there and I was like, hey, I'm mm -hmm. going off on this this trip with my wife. And when I come back, like I want to move into doing more for purpose work. So Thankfully, kept in contact with them when I came back, was able to, there was a few jobs going. They said, oh, why don't you take a look at this job, et cetera, you can apply and went from there. It meant about a 50% pay cut to what I was getting previously, but I never had this problem again of getting out of bed in the morning. Mm. Well, you have three children now? Yes. Yes. And how old are they? They're 10, 7, and 5. Okay. What are you teaching them about, you know, purposeful work or, you know, looking at things that they might want to do in their life? Like the two things that they see, they kind of know the work that they, I do and, and my wife does. She actually runs her own online YouTube yoga channel for, for mothers. So for either prenatal or postnatal or postbirth mothers to just help help them with yoga as well. So we both have pretty full purpose sort of work that we do. And you can talk to them directly about it and they kind of get it. But in their frame of thinking at that age, I think they more see it as like, well, that's what they do for work. I think what's probably more important is just that sort of modelling as human beings of sort of discussing it, talking about it, talking about how to do that in a healthy work-life balance way, about how you can make it positive or, or really just showing that in your day-to-day ways of living that you can create that positive impact. And then as they get older and older, I think hopefully those sort of behavior or, or that exposure to that from an early age helps to sort of set that moral compass in a, in a good direction for them to go out and, and follow similar things into the future. If our listeners are at the stage of identifying a problem, much like you did, that they want to help solve, how should they go about identifying that problem? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think for a lot of people it's probably best to sort of think, okay, well, what is the value add I can bring to this situation rather than probably focusing on what problem do I need to tackle or want to tackle? And I think people quite often get it around that wrong way is, is people tend to focus a bit too much on, okay, well, what am I really passionate about rather than what is the value I can add into this situation? Mm. So I would recommend, I mean, if you look at, 
And I think this exciting thing, you kind of had the traditional, there was the business world and then there was the sort of, you know, charities over here. But now you've got this thing called the social enterprise, which is a business that exists for doing good and it kind of sits in the middle. And the people that are needed in there are like really good accountants, really good marketing people, like, you know, people who have these really valuable skills in the corporate sector that using them for a sort of good. And again, also in the charity side is, is needed as well. So if you're at a career point where you're like, okay, well, I'm, I want to move into more for-purpose work, I wouldn't be stuck too much on what purpose it is. I'd just go, okay, what value can I add? Am I, for example, an accountant? Okay, just go and work in any organisation where they, they're for-purpose, but you can they can utilise your skills. And then once you get into that world, you start to understand more of what those opportunities are. Like I never had a, any idea I'd be doing what I, I'm doing now. It's just that as you go through, you constantly evolve and, and go from there once you get closer and closer to the, to the area where you want to work. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. I always talk about like the people that want to help fight climate change and they think they need to become a climate scientist. Like, well, actually, mm. there's needs for accountants, marketers, product developers, software engineers. You know, mm. there's a million different things that you could do. Look at the skill set that you have and how can you add value, as you were just mentioning. Yeah, exactly. Totally, totally. Well, my final two questions. The first is, is there anything you would like to leave listeners with today that we didn't already cover? No, I think we've had a, a pretty good com- conversation around it. I think for us, we've we've got... Over this next decade, I think we're at the early stages of really seriously tackling what I would call this energy transition, where we're decarbonizing our energy supply globally. So obviously, we're looking at renewables in the grid, in, in developed world, we're looking at electric vehicles, etc. It's going to be a very interesting decade because literally it's been, what, 200 odd years that we've been relying on fossil fuels as <laughs> our main source of energy. Yeah, Like, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate how big of a task is ahead of us and that we all need to look at, okay, well, how can we add into that part and be willing willing to realise that it may be a bit, the journey may be a little bit choppy along the way. And so like the, the friend I mentioned who was having these issues around brownouts in California and we had some recent issues in Australia where there was like you know, access to electricity and gas during winter, there, there are, there are going to be a few challenges along the way. But I think what we should be very mindful of is to make sure that this transition is not something that happens in the richer part of the world but Mm -hmm. we also look at how can we include people from all over the world in this this conversation and i don't know if we've really i mean we we've been from a moral perspective quite good in going okay well this was predominantly a Western problem, this, this climate change issue. We, the industrialised countries, we created the most emissions. Blah, blah, blah. That's, that's all fair, well and good. And so if you look at the government frameworks, there's a lot of concessions in there for developing countries, which I think is a, is a good structure. But it's kind of created this two-tier almost approach of going, okay, well, these guys are, are sort of here and a bit more serious about it and these guys are, are not. So I think, yes, it's it was good to create two tiers from a problem perspective, but we shouldn't create two tiers from a solution mm. perspective. I think that's a really important point. We should be looking at, I mean, we're trying to figure out how we can incentivize people to reduce emissions around cooking. We should be looking at it. How can we incentivize sort of, you know, countries like India and Vietnam who are still putting in huge amounts of coal-fired power stations right. moving forward? So it's great if, you know, us in, in the Western world or the developed world can 
bring down emissions, but it doesn't actually mean that much if, you know, the countries that are growing quite rapidly are actually putting in coal-fired power stations. So so we need to look at how we get everyone on board as, as part of that solution, I think. Yeah, I think that's a crucial, especially as these other countries start to be reaching the levels of developed countries and mm. the ways that we've been using energy, they're going to want to do the same thing, live in the same way. That's what they've seen. So if we can mm. come in and transition the types of energy they're using or the ways that they're doing and still give them that quality of life before they start emi mm. emitting all of that you know, energy and stuff that we went through in the developed world, I think is a, a crucial, crucial part that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, and it's very much. I don't think we can we can force them because, like you say, at the end of the day, they're a developing country. That they're, they're now moving into that developed phase. A lot of these countries, which a huge like we talk a lot about. If you look at perceptions around development and where we're at, generally people in the Western world are like, oh, okay, well, yeah, no, we're you know things have gotten worse over the last twenty years. But the reality is globally, we've had huge leaps forward, really big leaps forward. But at the end of the day, these people are going to want those better lives. And if it's like, okay, well, you're going to add 20% to my electricity bill because it's renewable, they're, they're, they're just not going to sign up to that from a, a moral perspective because they haven't had that full experience of the problem, their incomes are tighter, et cetera. So I, I do think we need to come at it from an incentive-based approach i think is really important i mean what's happened recently with oil and gas prices has also actually really just uncovered this whole idea of you know fossil fuels being this stable sort of you know energy supply that it actually is not the case and we've already seen in the governments and areas where we work with all of a sudden this this thinking start to shift energy has not just been about cost now but also energy security these guys are talking about and going oh hang on renewables means we're not exposed to a Ukraine crisis or to sort of how the pricing is happening in international markets. We can produce our own energy. And that that's starting to shift that thinking as well. So, yeah, so we, we've got to figure out ways to, to make this happen everywhere, basically. Yeah. Well, I think this leads into my final question, which is how can we push the world to evolve? We are undertaking one of the biggest leaps forward in humankind around decarbonizing energy. So... If we can land this, I kind of feel like we're like the gymnast who's doing like the triple backflip <laughs> mobile style. Currently, that's where we are. It's like the end of this decade is when we need to hit the mat mm -hmm. and we need to make sure we hit it standing up and sort of do that big thing, whatever it is. I don't know what they call it, they put their arms out, but they land, stick that landing and not just tumble over and, and all over the map from there. So if we can do that, number one, It'll decarbonize our energy salute, our energy grid. But number two, that'll be the framework for the next great evolution, mm -hmm. which is then basically energy becoming so cheap and so easy to produce that we will have abundant energy for all. And we'll move. And the best parallel I can talk about this is if you went back to someone in 2000 and you said, hey, do you know in 20 years' time you'll be able to have like no one even bothered charging you for phone calls. No one even bothered charging you for text <laughs> messages. You have unlimited data on this phone and you don't even know what data. And they'd just be like, that's crazy, man. How could a business ever survive providing that level of service? And that's what I hope to see electricity get to, where it becomes mm -hmm. so cheap to produce 100% renewable that at the end of the day, it's we can use energy in, in abundant ways. I think that's the ultimate goal where we need to get to. Yeah. Well, excellent analogy, Ben. It's been a pleasure on the interview today. I'm so glad that you came on. I'm really excited for the things that you guys are doing and hope to see it succeed in the future.
Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you for listening to the Evolve podcast. Links to everything we discussed today are available in the show notes. Transcripts are also available in the show notes. And everything can be viewed on our website at evolvethe.world. That's evolvethe.world. My one ask for you is to share this episode with others. If you know someone who is interested in social impact, social entrepreneurship, or just making a difference in the world, please share this episode with them. The challenges in our world need all of those who can contribute to existing solutions or create entirely new ones. So please share this show with those kind, intelligent people who are just like you. Until next time, my friend, keep evolving.